Once again, we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13, which says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you um, as people in dire need today. We need to hear from you. We need to, God, have our hearts exposed to your word. Lord, we ask that your gospel would be activated by your spirit to do its work in us. Lord, I pray for the believer that's gathered here that's been a believer for many, many years. I pray that their heart would be touched and that once again they'd be amazed at the great mercy of God and that they would be convicted of areas of compromise in their lives and and they'd be drawn deeper into you. Lord, I pray for those who are here that don't know you, Lord, that are living uh, just in, in an empty religion or in no religion at all, Lord, and and need you desperately, Lord. I pray that your word would would come like a lightning bolt and awaken them to the truth of who you are today, Lord. God, I pray as I do each week for myself that I would be able to be faithful in representing what your word says to your people. And Lord, that there would be no uh, hindering that in myself or in the ears of my hearers, Lord. I pray that that it would be accurately given and fully received, Lord. God, I thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for the people that you have by your spirit gathered here to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would just open our ears that we would truly hear and truly listen to what you have to say to us. I thank you for this moment, Lord. There will never be another like it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, We are really coming to the close. This is the sixth of the seven letters that that are listed for us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And um, this is, of course, the sixth letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. As I've told you over and over again, Philadelphia is not the one in Pennsylvania. Um, it is a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. And, um, uh, and in these series of letters, Christ has spoken through uh, the pen of John to each one of these churches, seven specific churches. And we talked about how the messages aren't limited to those churches, the, that number of seven as it has all through Revelation or will all through Revelation represents perfection. So it's, it's to the complete church is what these messages are to. And so each one of them, as opposed to being uh, isolated to a, a single church 2,000 years ago in a faraway country, has a lot to say to each one of these. And one of the things that we've noticed in each of these six letters that we've explored so far, 
um, is that Jesus introduces the message that he's revealing to each individual church that, uh, with a unique aspect of his character. He says, usually he introduces that like, these are the words of the one who, and he, and he lists something specific about his character. To the church at Philadelphia, he describes himself as the holy one, the true one. So he has these two elements, holy and true, that he is, he is introducing himself to this church as. Now, one of my favorite writer, thinker, speaker guys, you know, of all time is R.C. Sproul. Now, if you've been around me for more than 37 seconds, you know that because I'm always talking about something that Sproul said. And R.C. Sproul wrote a masterpiece called The Holiness of God. If you haven't read it, do me, do yourself a favor and get that book and read it. Uh, the Holiness of God is a, it's a, uh, the, the subject matter is so weighty, and yet the book is incredibly simple to read. That was one of the genius of R.C. Sproul, that um, I would really encourage you that. But he speaks in that book of the difficulty of defining the word holy. What does the word holy mean? And the reason there's some difficulty is because the word holy um, can have many different meanings in Scripture. Uh, most of us, when we hear the word holy, when we say this is a holy guy or this, you know, this is, uh, the, uh, when we describe something as holy, we usually mean that it's pure, that it's unspoiled and undefiled by sin and, and, and worldliness and things like that. And that is a legitimate meaning. But it also means separate. The, the word actually uh, comes from a word that means to cut away. And so to take something and cut it away from everything else. So, so we could use in our modern language, we could say it's a cut above. Holiness means that. It also means transcendent, which means that it exists apart from and it's not subject to the limitations of the spiritual universe. So when the Bible proclaims that God is holy, what it is saying is that God is transcendently separate. God is not like you. And aren't you glad for that mere fact? I would not want to serve a God who was like Mark Sharp. That would be big trouble for all of us. But we don't. We serve a God who is separate. He is beyond the, this creation. He's outside this creation because he's the, the, the uh, architect and the constructor of this creation. He's transcendent. He's bigger than we can ever imagine. God is as unlike his creatures as a cake is from the one who baked it. He is so, this is what Sproul says in his book. He says, he is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. And that describes God's holiness. And this is why God prohibited his people in the Ten Commandments from making images to represent what God is like. Why would God tell us that. Don't make an image to represent what I'm like. Well, it's obvious. How arrogant can we be to think we could ever begin to fathom the complexity or the majesty that exists in the unseen God? We can't do it. He told the people in Deuteronomy, he said, when I brought you out of Egypt, you saw no image. So don't craft one for yourself. Reading the descriptions of those who saw him in the scriptures in Exodus and Ezekiel and, and, and in Revelation, it, reading those descriptions, it almost stretches your imagination to the breaking point to try to, even though words are given to describe what God is like by those who saw him, you cannot formulate those words into a, into a conceivable image. And that, that's by intention because you can't understand God that way. But beyond being merely indescribable, within the boundaries of human language, God's holiness would make any face-to-face -face encounter with Him to be such a shock to our fallen systems that that encounter would prove to be lethal. Let me pre prove it to you. In Exodus 33, the, uh, the incident with the golden calf has just happened. Uh, you know, Israel has sinned. They've made an idol. They did exactly what God told them not to do. They made a graven image. And to add insult to 
injury. They made the image of a cow and they said, hey, Israel, this is your God. This is what God is like that brought you out of image, out of Egypt. And so this is what happens. God is speaking with Moses alone and Moses, with the, with the weight of his people's burden of their sin on him, he says, in, here in Exodus 33, verse 18, he says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And God does an amazing thing. God looks at him and says, okay, okay, I will. And this is what he says, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. He's saying that, that there is so much to his majesty that the human frame cannot even contain what they would witness. So Christ tells the church at Philadelphia, not only that he's the Holy One, but and, and we talked a little bit about what that means, but he also says, I love this, that he is the true one. Now notice, I want you to notice this, that, that in this passage, Jesus does not say, okay, church at Philadelphia, I am holy and I am true. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'm the Holy one and I am the true one. What is he saying? Christ is saying that he is singular, not only in his holiness, but in the truth. He is, he stands alone far and above any other representation of holiness, any other representation of truth. Christ is beyond all of that. In fact, uh, the, the, the book of Romans, uh, Paul in the book of Romans puts it so clearly when he says this lovely phrase. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And he said, so if God is on the one side saying something and the rest of humanity is saying something else on the other side, guess who's right? God is right. God does not ever lose the vote. He is right because he's the only true one. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he told his disciples, you may remember this, John 14, that he was going to a way to prepare a place for them. And then he says this thing. He said, and you know the way. Well, when he said that, Thomas, his disciple, protested. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, then how can we know the way? And Jesus looked at him and said that famous line from John 14, 6. He said, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, what I want you to understand about that saying of Jesus is that he wasn't saying I'm three different things. He wasn't saying, well, I'm, I'm the, in one sense, I'm the way. And if you look at it in another sense, I'm the truth. And then in another sense, I'm the life. No. Jesus himself was the way, the path, the road to where he was going and belief in his name, saving faith in his name and in his work would lead his disciples to where he was going. And the reason that is, is because he was the personification of the truth. So what I'm saying is, if Jesus wasn't the truth, Jesus could not have been the way. And the way, and, and, and what was he the way and the truth, what did the truth that he was, that, that made him the way, where did it lead to? Well, it led to the life. More than just, when it, when it says that Jesus is the personification of truth, it's talking about more than Jesus being George Washington with an axe in his hand saying, I cannot tell a lie. Jesus is it's saying so much more about Jesus than that he never tells lies. Jesus doesn't tell lies, but it's saying so much more. He's saying that Christ, the Bible says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ. So Christ is the only one who's ever showed up, no prophet, no priest, nobody has ever showed up that showed the world exactly what God was like until Jesus did. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so care, the, the, and what I want you to see about this, so Jesus says, I am the truth. And, and think about the world, the culture where Jesus said that. Right smack in the middle of Israel, right outside of Jerusalem. And, and, and the careful, what Jesus is saying is that the careful legal observance of the Jews could not reveal God's grace. 
So you couldn't find the full truth about God by looking at the Jews and their religion and, the, and their adherence to the Decalogue. You could not see the fullness of God by that. But guess what? The hedonism and the freedom and the licentiousness of the Romans couldn't show God's holiness. So you sure couldn't look at those guys and call it, you know, all under grace and think that you found a representation of God. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. In John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, now watch this, full of grace and full of truth. So Jesus was the perfect representation of all that God is, grace and truth, fully, fully seen in one individual. So we read today, or Raven read to us, that the Philadelphian church is persecuted by a synagogue of Satan. Now we've seen that once before, do you remember? We saw that in the, in the letter to Smyrna, that Smyrna also said, I know the, the synagogue that's there, it's a synagogue of Satan, the people that they're, they claim to be Jews, but they're not. Jesus says the same thing about these folks here in Philadelphia. These are Jews who claim, now, now keep in mind, Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the true one. But these Jews in the synagogue of Satan are claiming to have the truth and the exclusive right to God's holiness. Holiness is found in their estimation through a careful legal observance of, of Moses' law. And, and so, uh, the, you know, they have this idea that they are the ones who reveal truth. They're the ones who display God's holiness. But Jesus absolutely displaces their claims by being the only true and holy one. Their covenant claims, as a matter of fact, their claims to be in the covenant that God made uh, with, with you know, the people of Israel prove to be false because they've denied their Messiah, who was the, the goal of all of their believing. And so this is, let's go back a little bit. Look at verse 7 in fullness again. It says, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. We've seen that over and over again. Behold, I've set before you an open door who which no one is able to shut. Now I love this because Christ assures this persecuted church, persecuted by the synagogue of Satan, he assures them that he is not only holy and true, but he is in charge. I love that. He says, I have the key of David. I love that. He's been given both the throne and the authority of King David, just as had been promised way back in the Old Testament. And this key of David, that may sound mysterious to you, but it's representative of Christ's authority as the son of David sitting on his throne, reigning over the people of God. See, the false Jews from the synagogue of Satan tried to keep the Christians out of God's kingdom by using another key. It wasn't the key of David, it was the key of Moses. Christians were expected to keep all of the ceremonial minutiae of the law, be circumcised, observe the feast, follow the dietary laws, all of it. But the book of Hebrews surveys that entire covenant that Moses mediated and summarily declares Christ the grantor of a better hope and the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises and based on a better sacrifice. Do you see what God is doing? He's, he is displacing one thing with another thing that's far, far better. And the Jews of the synagogue of Satan, they're in Smyrna and they're in Philadelphia, kept calling people back to be locked into the key of Moses. And the key of David was given to Christ to set them free, to let them out of prison. The covenant that was made with Israel through Moses was conditional and never forget that. If you read a passage like Deuteronomy 28, you'll see that, that the, the covenant that, that God made with the people through Moses required this terrifying phrase, blessings for obedience. And the inverse was curses for disobedience. So as long as you obeyed, man, there were some good days ahead of you. But if you didn't obey, you were in violation of the covenant and everything was going to fall apart. It was conditional. Um, the people's obedience was required in order to gain the promised blessings. But the Jews, over and over again, just in the Bible, violated the terms of that Mosaic covenant over and over and over and over and over again. 
But the covenant made with David back in the book of 2 Samuel, the covenant made with David was unconditional. What was that covenant? God said, there will never be, a, uh, there will never cease to be someone from your family line, David, to sit on your throne and rule my people. Never. And, and that, that has been fulfilled, obviously, through Jesus. This, this promise was unconditional. Its basis was the faithfulness of God alone, who promised that someone from David's family would always lead his people. And Jesus was not only the guarantor of a better covenant, he was that king. And he had come, and now nothing could ever, because it was an unconditional promise, nothing could ever take him away from that role as the people's king, of the God's people's king. So I said all that to say this. When we talk about the key of David, it is not, listen to me carefully, it is not Moses who controls access to God's kingdom. And listen to me, if it is Moses, then you're all in a heap of trouble. And I'm in a heap of trouble. But Moses doesn't have the authority to control access to God's kingdom. The one who controls access to God's kingdom is the son of David. It's Jesus Christ. See, the false Jews of Satan's synagogue were shut out of the kingdom. And all of their law keeping could not pry the door open. But on the other hand... This door had swung wide. It was wide open to the believers in Philadelphia. And the Bible tells us through the Spirit of God that no one could now shut it. Revelation uh, verse eight, 3 verse 8 says, I know, Jesus speaking to the church of Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As we've seen in the letters to the other churches, Christ's evaluation of this church is different than the way they evaluate themselves, how they see themselves. They see their weakness. Man, we have little strength. We have little power. But Jesus, what Jesus focuses on is their faithfulness. Sometimes we, we only tend to regard the spiritual success of others because of things like they're not tempted in the same way that we are tempted or they have better spiritual disciplines than we do or they're they seem to be more successful in their gospel witness but god is not grading his people on a curve i'm better than you you're better than me i'm worse than you you're worse than me god isn't interested in that what he's looking for is faithfulness and consistency he's not looking for celebrities he's not looking for supermen or wonder women he he we need never to compare ourselves to others, but to strive to be faithful and pleasing to the Lord where we are with what we've been given and for his glory alone. And this is what Christ was trying to say to the church of Philadelphia. I love this reminded me when I read it this week of Paul in Galatians. He says this incredible phrase. He's trying to convince the the, uh, the uh, Galatians not to try to slip back into law keeping in order to be saved, but to trust the grace of Jesus. And he says this. He says in verse one ten. He says, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man?" Well, listen to this phrase carefully and examine your life by it. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If we strive to obtain everybody else's approval or to measure up by their standard of what good Christianity looks like, or if we're more concerned with the spirituality of others, then we're really not servants of Christ by any measures. We become servants of our own proud ego. And that's, that's not the, the, the path of a disciple. The, the disciple is, says, whatever it takes by the mercy of God and by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am going to stay faithful. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You, you are, you know, responsible to God for you. I'm responsible to God for me. And so, uh, man, I just want to be faithful. And Philadelphia was commended. Think about this. Because when everything was against them, they were being persecuted by the synagogue of Satan, for goodness sakes. When everything else was against them, they kept 
God's word and did not deny his name. That's huge. They were a persecuted church for sure, but they didn't worry about what they were not. In other words, they didn't say, well, we could really make an impact in this city. We could really be faithful to God if only this this persecution would end. No, they didn't worry about what they weren't. They concerned themselves with persevering in faith. And of this very fact, Jesus took notice. He watched and he commended them for it. And so when you think about that, because this is, I could tell you the whole story about Philadelphia, but I want us to think about where we're at today, 2,000 years later. When you think about this and, and all the outside pressure that you might be subject to, what is the pressure on you right now that is making obedience difficult? What are you facing right now that would make it super easy for you to just throw in the towel? Perhaps it's a difficult relationship at home. Perhaps it's some health problem that has just gone on and on and on. Maybe it's financial trouble that you just can't seem to get your head above. But so many times when we're in those places, we we spend a lot of time just begging God for some sort of breakthrough so that we can be faithful to Him. Um, we'll, We'll march around the walls of Jericho seven times. We'll do whatever it takes to get God to bring a breakthrough. But But what if instead of begging God for a breakthrough so that we can be faithful to Him, we would just be faithful to Him in spite of the resistance and depend on the Holy Spirit to balance all the scales of the end of the time. Wouldn't that be a better way to handle our situations and our troubles? Ephesians 6, I love this. I remember first seeing this when I first got saved 30 some odd years ago. Ephesians 6 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Y'all are mostly familiar with that scripture, I'm sure. But listen to what it says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil Day Now, I've noticed that much of my praying over my Christian life, can I be real honest with you? Can y'all handle that? Most of my praying in my Christian life has been, God, just help me to avoid the evil day. Just spare me the evil day. And here's Paul sticking his finger right in my eye and saying, take up the whole armor of God so that you can withstand in the evil day, right smack dab in the middle of it. And listen to this, having done all to stand firm. There may come a time where you say, man, I've prayed enough. I've, I've, I mean, about the certain situation. I mean, I, I've exhausted myself in prayer. I, I've, I've, you know, marched around enough Jerichos and all that sort of thing. But, it, you know, when you've done all, what God is calling you to is right here, having done all, to stand firm. Well, how do you stand firm? By taking up the whole armor of God. And before he describes all these elements of the armor, the helmet and the breastplate and, the, and, the, and the, the sword and all those things that you're familiar with, he says this at the very beginning of verse 14, he says, stand therefore. So you, you, you take on the whole armor of God. You, you do everything that you can do to be a faithful Christian. And as you do, you stand firm and you stand therefore with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. You're, you're wearing the shoes of truth and the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. All of those things, you do that, um, uh, and, and, and realize that God has equipped you and enabled you to stand firm under every type of, of assault from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The trick to prosperity, to prosperity in Christianity is not to get out of all this mess, but to stand firm in the middle of it. What does the Bible say over and over again? We've read it in Revelation. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres, the one who goes through it and makes it through it, clinging to Christ. And that's what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia. Everybody awake this morning? Okay, good. Just want to make sure. I'd be really disappointed if you weren't, because I worked really hard on this. I'm just I'm kidding. So, <laughs> so verse 9. This is good. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Man, isn't that good? What does that mean? Well, one thing I'm convinced 
that we don't often think about as a benefit of the gospel, as one of the promises of clinging to Christ. Think about this. But it's our own personal vindication in the end. Did you know that's a promise of the gospel? That God will, I always say it like this, he'll balance all the scales. There'll be, there'll be nothing left undone. It, we don't think about that idea of personal vindication very much, but it's a very real aspect of our coming glory. Now, some of you are getting nervous because you're thinking that I'm talking about, you know, just, just, you know, killing all the bad guys. No, no, no. We are never, the Bible says this over and over again, we are never to avenge ourselves. But we're also not to forget that a day is coming and coming soon when God will bring about perfect justice. There will be no no account left unpaid in the day that Christ establishes justice. And why can Jesus do that? Now, I can't. Jesus is not entrusting me with making sure that all of you who have wronged me are now getting justice. And you're not entrusted with making me, if I've ever been unjust to you, you're not responsible to make sure that I get, you know, give you justice. Um, Because there's a problem with that. Because you and I are plagued, I mean literally plagued with petty jealousies and and all kinds of things that that complicate our sense and our understanding of justice. What might seem just to me doesn't seem just to you. What might seem just to you doesn't seem just to me. And so we have all that problem. And sometimes um, God uses, and more than that, not only do we not understand what justice should look like, sometimes, here's a shocker, God uses our present trials and even our persecutions to refine us and make us holy. And so he tells us over and over again in the scripture, he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There is going to be a day of retribution. Make no mistake about it, but you won't be in charge of it. That's good news, not bad news. That's good news. In taking responsibility to see that justice is accomplished for us, God releases us from a weighty burden. Now, what do I mean by that? When I'm responsible for my own, you know, sense of justice and and making sure it's accomplished, then I have to expend a lot of energy and anger and bitterness while plotting my revenge. But we can rest assured that the justice God brings will be full and it'll be completely satisfactory when the time is right. And that's good news. God's justice poured out on those who've wronged us. It's not going to, in that day, elevate our pride or our arrogance, but it'll cause us to worship as we see the lengths that he's gone to vindicate us. And as we realize how great his mercy is in Christ Jesus, that has spared us from experiencing similar wrath. Philadelphia's Jews would bow down in judgment before those they persecuted, and they would be struck with with an awareness of the love of God that he has for his own. That's what he said. He said, they're, they're going to bow down before you and they're going to know how much I've loved you. Now think about this. What a humbling thought this is for us in this life. What compassion it should instill in us for all the lost who right now are mocking Christ and mocking his saints. What fearful warnings we should boldly proclaim to those who disregard God's holiness. Because our heart should be like Christ's heart, not waiting for the day when, when Christ puts his foot on the neck of our enemies. But our hope should be that our enemies become our brothers and sisters, receiving the same mercy and the same grace that we have received. Because Christ said that if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, you will not be forgiven. So some of you, when I said that vindication is a real part of the gospel, and it is, you went, woo, all right, counting the moments. Somebody's going to get it. But that's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus hangs bleeding on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And if there's anybody that ever deserved retribution, it was Roman soldiers who put nails in his hands and feet, Jewish leaders who spit on him and mocked him, and he was crying out for their forgiveness. And the question is, though God has promised retribution for you, 
and for those who have been unjust to you, are you willing to say, I'm crying out for their forgiveness, just like Jesus? Let's move on. Verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. When Christ speaks of the Philadelphian church keeping my word about patient endurance, he's not referring to a moral command somewhere in the Bible that says, hey, be patient, endure. There are those commands, but that's not what he's referring to. He's not referring to a moral command about waiting, but he's, he, when he says the word about patient endurance, he's referring to the sum and substance of the gospel. The gospel is essentially a message about people who must always patiently endure. Think about it. We wait for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the call to salvation. We wait for his sanctifying work in us. How many of you have areas of your life you're still waiting for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in you. Anybody honest enough? I don't see a single hand in here. Okay, I got a couple of you. The rest of you, I hope you get saved this morning um, because we're waiting for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us. We wait for deliverance from trials and temptations. We wait for assurance of salvation. We wait for the return of Christ in power and the resurrection and glorification of the dead in Christ. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You will not inherit the promises of the gospel without a serious commitment to patience. Amen? Under the trial from the uh, synagogue of Satan, this church had kept Jesus' word. They were unmovable in their Christian duties, even as the hounds of hell bore down on them. And are we the same way when we're enduring trials, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled through patient endurance? And because of this, Christ will reward them by keeping them, not letting their faith fail, even during a global test in which the ground under many will be rocked, Jesus isn't promising. Now, I want you to notice this. When he says, I'll keep you from the trial, he's not saying that I'm promising, you to, uh, promising to keep you from suffering or martyrdom, but he's promising that they'll be kept from the wrath of God that'll be poured out upon unrighteous people. He doesn't say he'll keep them out of the hour of trial, but from it, from its power, from its purpose to judge the unrighteous of the earth. The point is that for those truly converted to Christ, trials, while often painful, usually painful, should have a very different effect on us than they do on those outside of Christ. Our trials should make us long to be like Jesus, fellowshipping with him in his sufferings. They should make us long for deliverance from this earthly reality as we loosen our grip on this world and cling ever more tightly to the next world. Revelation 3 verse 11 says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, comment, uh, commentators, Bible commentators, are split on what I am coming soon means, depending a lot on how they look at you know, uh, references to the end time. Some see it as referring to Jesus' appearing at his last judgment. And others see it as more immediate, as in Jesus is coming to deliver them from the midst of their persecutions described in this letter. If you favor a more end times rationale for I am coming soon, um, it makes sense. Second Peter 3, 8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God's time frame is different. And it is based on his patience and his mercy. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. However, favoring a more immediate understanding helps us to understand this wonderful fact, that Christ is ever present to help. Do you believe that? He's ever present to help. And we don't have to wait for the sweet by and by to see him graciously intervene in our daily troubles. But wherever we fall on the question of biblical timeline, we mustn't miss the point. We are to remain faithful. 
We're, we're to remain faithful and keep holding on and, and, and keep your hand to the plow, as Jesus said. And don't look back because great loss occurs if we do. Giving up on our patience allows the devil to move in on us and, and as it says here in Revelation, to seize our crown. Well, what crown is this talking about? I love this. This, is, this uh, can be tied directly to a reference Paul makes probably just mere days before he was beheaded by Nero. And he write, writes his last letter, 2 Timothy. In verse 4-8, he talks about crowns there as well. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so uh, there is a crown that's coming to those who, who love his appearing because loving his appearing requires patient endurance. Verse 12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Philadelphia, uh, in its history, had suffered many earthquakes in the past, but before this was written. And God is saying, I love this, that, that if they overcome, if they conquer, that he will make them a pillar in the permanent temple in the new Jerusalem. Now think about what that's saying, that those dwelling in a city that was both shaky in the spiritual and in the natural realms are promised eternal stability and security. Don't you hate it when life just feels all up in the air and shaky and like you're on a roller coaster? And what, what God is promising to those who will be faithful is someday life is going to take on a whole new stable dimension that you wouldn't even recognize it if I described it to you right now. If I could describe it because I can't recognize it either. But a day is coming where everything will be stable. And they would... They would be given citizenship in that heavenly city as, as well, this new Jerusalem. But they would be given so much more. They would not just be residents of the new Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. But the Bible tells us that they'll be adopted into the royal family. He says, I'll write on them the name of my God and my own new name. <coughs> Excuse me. The son of David will put them beside him. He'll place them right beside him as joint heirs in his kingdom. Uh, I, when I read this this week, I thought of this passage from Psalm, Psalm chapter 78. And it may sound mysterious, but let me read it to you and then I'll kind of explain it. It says, among those who know me, this is a prophetic scripture looking forward to the future. It says, among those who know me, I, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there, Selah. Now, what is this saying? So, as you know, this, you know, the, the Old Testament was, was written primarily to Jews and, and, and people that, that were under that old covenant. But Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush, all of those that are mentioned in this passage are Gentile nations, not Jewish nations, Gentile nations. But the psalmist predicts a day that even they will be regarded as having been naturally born on Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And this prophecy became a reality when the king that now sits on David's throne took his key and unlocked the gates of the new Jerusalem for Gentiles like you and I. Now, I don't know. I say this every time I mention this, this great aspect of the gospel. I don't know if we have any Orthodox blood, you know, born Jews in this room. If, you, if you're here, welcome. But, but most of us, would have, would have, you know, two and a half thousand years ago would have had no part in the kingdom of God. But because of mercy, because of mercy, now you and I are included. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you. It's a huge deal. 
The, the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 that there was a time when we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And now we learn that we've been grafted into Israel, that we are a part of the people of God because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that a day is coming where they'll look at those, those nations and they'll say, hey, this one, uh, he, he's not from Israel, but he was born there. This guy, he's, he's from a completely different country, but he was born there. This guy doesn't know anything about our traditions, our ceremonies, our laws, but he was born there. That God is going to be adopting into his kingdom people from all over the world. And through Christ, we are more than citizens of heaven. We are part of a divine family. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Watch. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You have been adopted by Christ into the family of God. The letter to Philadelphia stands as an encouragement to you and I to persevere. Though we live in a world that often flexes with hostility, the king on David's throne has opened the door for us that no one can shut. He shut, he, he shut a door against all liars and locked it all mockers, all persecutors, and it cannot be opened by human effort. But for those of you, those of you who have called on his name through saving faith and repentance, he has swung the door wide and no one can ever remove you from that kingdom. You are, you are his. And someday the, the proclamation, when the rolls are read, the proclamation is going to be gone. Hey, Terry, she was born in Zion. Jesse was born in Zion. Sherman was born in Zion. And he's a part of this family. And now the son does not, uh, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters because they all have one source, the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to do one thing before we, uh, before we wrap things up today. Um, today... Um, is Jason's last Sunday with us. Uh, my son Jason, uh, for those of you who might be new here, the keyboard player, uh, was, uh, he is going to grad school tomorrow. He's going to Idaho. And, um, and just like we always do when people move off, um, we're going to pray over him. And I'd like for you to, to join me in praying over Jason as we send him out. And, um, and then uh, after we're done, I'll, I'll pronounce the benediction. And then Jason will come down here. And if any of you guys want to come down and hug his neck and wish him well, then we'll do that. So Jason, you can go ahead and come on up here. I think we're waiting on mom. She was in the, she was in the uh, uh, children's ministry. And so we're going to get her in here. Somebody's going to tag her out. So why don't you take a minute while we're waiting on her. Well, here she comes. Tell a little bit about, for those who don't know what you're doing exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a PhD in clinical psychology. So um, at Idaho State in Pocatello. So um, I'm going to be working with like, I'll be doing child trauma type things. Um, so I'll be there at least four years before I go on internship. So pretty long time. <laughs> <laughs> so we have... Um, Obviously, this one's a little personal to me because um, Jason is my son. I love him very, very much. Um, we have, he's been such a blessing to our family in ways that obviously I could not even begin to list or you guys would never have lunch or a Sunday nap or dinner or, you know, tomorrow at work. He wouldn't be there because I'd just go on and on and on. But um, I, I love him very much and I'm really, I mean, this is a hard day for us. We're going to, we do get to take him up there, which is going to be nice. So we're going to all leave in the morning. And um, uh, uh, I'm not trying to expose you, but Ginger came and sat down beside me during worship. She's crying. I said, I said, you okay? And she said, I'm crying because he's leaving. So anyway, and um, uh, so uh, beyond all the things that Jason has been and his, his just faithful, uh, you know, I've, I've watched him share the gospel with his friends and, and um, just be an encouragement to his brothers and, and me and his mom. Um, Jason has just, man, he's served this church. He's done children's ministry. He's been our keyboard player. I remember he was just a young teenager the first time he just started um, using his gift and we, we got him up here. Man, he just flourished in that. And so we're so grateful to, to uh, uh, 
uh, have him for the time that he was here, and uh, we are all going to miss him. And so, anyway, we just want to pray a blessing. I'll come over here uh, to the middle, Jason, and, and we're just going to pray over you. Ginger, do you have anything that you want to say? or you uh, Grab that mic right there. No, I, I, I mean, it, it, this is just really hard because he has... I don't know. He's just been such a part of the church. It's hard to lose him for our family, for sure. But he's he's been a part of this bigger family as well. And so I know a lot of you are going to miss him as well. So, If you feel comfortable doing this, just extend a hand up here and we'll pray for Jason. God, I, I thank you for this gift that you gave me and Ginger so, so many years ago. I thank you for the joy of watching him grow and um, watching him put his trust in you and watching him be faithful um, in his witness before his friends and God watching him lay down his life in service to your kingdom and to your church, Lord, and watching him pursue lofty and noble goals uh, through education and uh, his academic pursuits, Lord. And um, Lord, I just, I thank you for um, the man that you've crafted him into and and Lord, I just want to pray that as He has blessed so many, um, blessed our church, blessed our family, blessed me as a father, Ginger as a mother. Lord, I pray that You would just uh, bless him as well. I pray that that He would uh, make really solid relationships with people who love Him, people who will serve Him spiritually, people who will call out deeper things in Him through the gospel in Pocatello. And Lord, I pray that that um, He would. Um, learn to, to trust you um, and even, God, to see his work as a gracious gift from you and to you, Lord, that, that uh, he, can, he can offer uh, to serve the, the, the people of his community wherever he finds himself. Lord, I pray that you would keep him safe. I pray that you would just um, keep him uh, close to your side and, God, speak to his uh, heart. Lord, uh, just how much that you love him and how much that you are, are in control of his life and his destiny. And Lord, we pray that, that he would prosper in everything he puts his hands to and that he would enjoy, um, God, just this new phase of his life and that it would be very satisfying and fulfilling to him. So Lord, we send him out in blessing and we ask you to, to fulfill all of your good plans for him, all of your good desires. And Lord, we pray that you would return him back to us safely soon and that we would rejoice at every reunion that we have with him. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Um, Thank you for the moment that we've had together just to celebrate the man that he is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would just wait down here. I'm going to read this. If you would stand with me and extend your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to dismiss you with this benediction. And then, like I said, Jason will be down here so that you can uh, speak to him if you so desire. Um, This is what the scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen. You're dismissed.